Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work. They take care of our air conditioning, and they do a great job. They can help you, too. Give them a call and visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Bob Levy. He is a chairman of the Cato Institute and a constitutional scholar. We'll be talking about anti-discrimination laws versus the right to discriminate. Interesting discussion. Andrew Joppa will be joining us, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. And Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in space architecture and author of several books. Uh, He's uh, uh, written a book called uh, Why Truman's uh, Humans Are Truly Exceptional and also a book coming out recently or soon, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. It is November the 24th and on this day in 1859, On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, a groundbreaking scientific work by British naturalist Charles Darwin was published in England. Darwin's theory argued that organisms gradually evolved through a process he called natural selection. In natural selection, organisms with genetic variations that suit their environment tend to propagate more descendants than organisms of the same species that lack the variation, thus influencing the overall genetic makeup of the species. That's pretty clear. Darwin, who was influenced by the work of French naturalist Jean-Baptiste de Lamar and English economist Thomas Malthus, acquired most of the evidence of their theory during a five-year surveying expedition aboard the HMS Beagle in the 1830s. Visiting such diverse places as Galapagos Islands and the New Zealand, Darwin acquired an intimate knowledge of the flora, fauna, and geology of many lands. This information, along with his studies and variations in interbreeding after returning to England, proved invaluable to the development of his theory of organic evolution. The idea of organic evolution was not new. It had been suggested earlier by, among others, Darwin's grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, a distinguished English scientist, and Lamar, who in his early 19th century work century drew the first evolutionary diagram, a ladder leading to one-celled organism to man. However, it was not until Darwin that that science presented a practical explanation for the phenomenon of evolution. He'd formulated his theory of natural selection by 1844, but he was weary to reveal these theses to the public because it so obviously contradicted the biblical account of creation. In 1858, with uh, Darwin still remaining silent about his findings, the British naturalist Alfred Russell Wallace independently published a paper that essentially summarized his theory. Darwin and Wallace gave a joint lecture on evolution before the Linnean Society of London in uh, July 1858. And Darwin prepared On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection for publication. Origin of Species sold out immediately. Most scientists quickly embraced the theory that solved so many puzzles of biological science, but Orthodox Christians condemned the work as heresy. Controversy over Darwin's ideas deepened with the uh, publication of The Descent of Man in the selection in relation to sex in 1871, in which he presented evidence of man's evolution from apes. By the time Darwin's death in 1882, 
His theory of evolution was genetic or generally accepted. In honor of his scientific worth, he, w- he was buried in Westminster Abbey al- beside kings, queens, and other illustrious figures from British history. Subsequent developments in genetics and molecular biology led to modifications in accepted evolutionary theory, but Darwin's ideas remain central to the field. <clears throat> and of course, uh, throughout history, since then, there's been this discussion of uh, religion versus science, and of course, it shouldn't be a binary theory. Of course, there are developments that uh, lead to our better understanding of science that can influence our beliefs and religion. But there's a difference between religion and faith. Religion, you know, there's 500 sects of uh, being Baptists here in the United States. So there are differences in religion. We can have those, but essential faith comes down to believing in God or believing in Jesus Christ. That is an act of faith. can't find it through uh, just plain religion. Uh, well, November of eight, 1621 marked one year in the New World for a band of what began as 35 English religious separatists and 67 entrepreneurs who landed on the shores of New England. In their first winter, harsh conditions and diseases like pneumonia and scurvy led to the death of 45 of the original 102. In keeping with almost 50-year-old English tradition, the remaining settlers, along with some uh, Indian tribe members, came together for the first Thanksgiving feast, but rather than the bounty that was often depicted in pictures, the situation for the English colonists was actually quite dire. According to William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth for the first 30 years and author of Of Plymouth Plantation, which, by the way, I've read, it's an interesting read, prior to sailing to the New World, the pilgrims and the entrepreneurs signed a seven-year contract stipulating that, quote, all profits and benefits that are got by trade Traffic, trucking, working, fishing, or any other means of persons or persons shall be pooled for the common benefit. Now, what does that sound like? Sounds an awful lot like communism. That's right. The pilgrims started off by trying to establish a socialist society where at the end of seven years, the capital and profits, the houses, the lands, the goods, the chattels be equally divided betwixt the adventurers and the planters. Food, drink, and apparel and other provisions were provided out of the common stock and goods of the colony meaning quite simply that those who worked hard got the same provisions as those who loafed. The first two years were a disaster. With shortages and starvation, the youngest and strongest men complained they had to work for other men's wives and families without pay. Needless to say, the lack of incentive to thrive caused additional privation. So while the first Thanksgiving in America likely was held on the day in late November in 1621 to celebrate the blessings that God had provided, Bradford made it clear that these were not abundance, but instead there was a food shortage. After two years, the pilgrims decided to change what was needed, so they decided to end the common goods experiment by giving every family a plot of land based on their size, establishing private property rights in the colony. Governor Bradford proclaimed the change to have created very good success, for it made all hands very industrious, so much more corn could be planted than otherwise would have been. The women now went out tillingly in the field and told the little ones with them to set corn, which before would allege weakness and inability, whom to have compelled, who have been thought great tyranny and oppression. The pilgrims no longer resented going into the field because they got to keep the benefits of their labor. Bradford reports, instead of famine now, God gave them plenty, and that the face of things had changed to the rejoicing of the hearts of many, for which they blessed God, and general want of famine hath not been amongst them since this day. 
Yes, the early days of the Pilgrim Colony proved that even amongst a very small interdependent group, the socialist model is just a failure. Not just an academic exercise that went awry, but instead a mistake that cost many of the original settlers their lives. And the picture of abundance that is associated with the first Thanksgiving is more appropriately assigned to the third one, where corn was plentiful and people could look forward to a long winter with sufficient provisions provided through their own labor. If American schools taught American history to our children, teenagers, and college students, every single one would recognize that Karl Marx's social ideal almost killed the Pilgrim colony. It was only through private ownership of property and the ability to profit off of one uh, that property should you har- through your heart later that a true Thanksgiving feast was actually established. Having visited Plymouth for 399th anniversary of the Pilgrim Landing, what is now the shores of Massachusetts, it's hard not to be struck by how this simple message is obscured in the official presentations and pomp. The bounty was for free enterprise and private property ownership. Thanksgiving was to God who made all these blessings possible and was the founder of their feast. And while death was rampant and the future of the hard winter of the near starvation was nearly upon them, the pilgrims celebrated with their new neighbors uh, because they were, uh, with the previous year, had been cataclysmic. The hope for reconciliation with God through Jesus was also was recent enough to celebrate. Quite a story. Most people don't understand that uh, there was a seven-year pact uh, that they would continue. They would start off and throw everything in the middle. It would all become common property, and they'd all work hard for the benefit of the community. Didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. So interesting. By the way, happy Thanksgiving. I wanted to make sure that uh, we had a chance to talk about it. I was going to do it at the end of the show, but I thought, nope, may not get to it, so I want to do it now. Oil prices rose above $82 a barrel on Tuesday morning after the Biden administration announced the U.S. and other nations would release tens of millions of barrels of oil from reserves in a ploy to lower prices. The price of Brent sweet crude, the global benchmark, rose by more than 3.3% following an announcement the U.S. would release 50 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. China, India, South Korea, Japan, and Britain are also planning to release reserves. Of course, none of them really produce oil, the White House said. The price of West Texas Intermediate jumped more than 2.5%. The Biden administration hopes the reserve release will tamp down the price of gasoline and combat inflation. Now, mind you, that's a 2.6% day uh, supply of energy here in the United States, 50 million gallons. So it's not our barrels. It's not going to do a lot to alleviate the problem. It's all window dressing. Joe Biden really wanted to solve this problem. You know what he could do? He could open up the pipelines. He could get rid of some of these regulations that are tying things up, gumming things up. We're all tied up in our underwear. We used to be energy independent. We should do the things necessary to get us back to that point. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network.
I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Iowa County Sheriff Kevin Rambos says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. Golden Gate Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected into the community and with each other. The Golden Gate Senior Center provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Tatiana Fortune, director of the Golden Gate Senior Center. We want to be able to connect you to whatever service or activity. And even if the person doesn't want to come out for socialization, if they have a question about, um, hey, where do I go for transportation? Where do I go for uh, a certain health care? If they have a need, we are able to point them in that direction through our information and referral service. So we're more than happy to assist in that as well. To find out more, visit CallYourSeniorResources.org. That's callyourseniorresources.org or call the Senior Center directly at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app from the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's an author. He's also the uh, constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. Well, I will, but before I do that, I want to tell your listeners that today is your birthday, (laughs) and they should all wish you a happy birthday. You are a man of engaging humor and vast energy and an unwavering commitment with a beautiful and loving wife, and uh, I extend to you thanks for your friendship and a Happy birthday to you, as well as a happy Thanksgiving. Oh, Bob, that is so nice. Thank you so much for that, and uh, just really value your friendship as well. I've learned so much from you, Bob. Uh, You've had a big influence on my life, and I appreciate our friendship and your tutoring, quite frankly. Well, back to the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in D.C. and focusing on private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O.org on the web. Thank you, Bob. And uh, we started a conversation a couple weeks ago about the difference between uh, or t- 
tension between anti-discrimination laws and the right to discriminate, which I think the Cato Institute and libertarians support the notion to have uh, the right to discriminate. So let's pick up the conversation with this question. Doesn't the Bible establish marriage as the union of one man and one woman? Well, even if we were um, morally bound by the dictates of the, of the Bible, we, we aren't legally bound. Uh, the Constitution, of course, separates church and state. And furthermore, I think on the merits of your question, uh, the biblical argument is um, there's some dispute about it. There's a, there's a book that's kind of interesting called God and Sex, What the Bible Really Says. And uh, the author points out that uh, polygamy uh, was practiced uh, in the biblical period and mm-hmm. among Jews as late as the second century. Uh, so the union of a man and a woman is not exclusive uh, in biblical terms, uh, although it is, of course, the prevailing practice for many centuries. Absolutely. Earlier in the show, we were talking about the fact this is the. Uh, founding the, the day of publication of uh, Darwin's thesis on uh, evolution, and pointing out that, you know, there's a tension between uh, uh, faith and religion. A lot of religious beliefs are not necessarily true, but, uh, you know, we can all, faith is timeless. And, uh, right. you know, all right, but that, right. that of course, is, is, a, is a leap. It, a leap of faith is what it amounts to. You, you, you can't find it anywhere, but you can believe it for sure. So there have been two key Supreme Court decisions on same-sex marriage. Tell us about the one involving Defense of Marriage Act. It's an interesting case. It was called U.S. v. Windsor back in 2013. and It's whether that act uh, discriminated against uh, same-sex couples uh, because the federal government denied same-sex couples uh, benefits, at least denied them the same benefits as heterosexual couples. This was brought by Windsor. She was 83 years old, and she paid $363,000 in estate tax Mm. after her partner, a 44-year partner, uh, died. They they were married in Canada, and they lived in New York. Um, If she had been married to a man, she would not have owed any uh, tax. Right. Well, Kennedy uh, held for a 5-4 court that uh, federal benefits paid to heterosexual couples only violated the Equal Protection Clause. He pointed out that domestic relations is a virtually exclusive province, not of the federal government, but of the states. And this Defense of Marriage Act uh, imposed restrictions and disabilities on a politically unpopular group. Um, And now... The state uh, recognized those folks as married and sought to protect uh, those folks. So Roberts, uh, by the way, dissented in that case, only to point out that the states, uh, that the court did not go so far as to define marriage as heterosexual only. The DOMA decision applied to federal benefits, not the definition of marriage. That would come. Uh, later, a couple years later. That's so interesting. Yeah, and also points out, I think, how uh, intrusive the federal income tax uh, law laws are in, in our society, actually having some Indeed. impact on decision as well, uh, marriage as well. So how Indeed. about the key uh, 2015 decision establishing 
a fundamental right to same-sex marriage. Yes, that's the second decision that I was referring to two years after DOMA. It was Obergefell versus Hodges, uh, and the question there was whether the 14th Amendment requires states to issue same-sex licenses. Uh, uh, John Arthur and Jim Obergefell, they lived in Cincinnati, but uh, Ohio passed a ban on same-sex marriage. Mm -hmm. So Arthur uh, was on his deathbed, and he and Obergefell decided to take a private jet to Maryland and get married. It was legal in Maryland. And and then when he returned, uh, Ohio refused to put Obergefell's name as the husband uh, on the death certificate. So he sued. Kennedy again, 5-4 again, said that the 14th Amendment requires the states to license same-sex marriage. He pointed out that history and and tradition, back to our biblical discussion, are only guides and not legal Mm -hmm. uh, mandates, that the rights come not only from the ancient sources, but also from our evolving understanding uh, of liberty. So the court didn't call sexual orientation a special protected class like race or like gender. Instead, the court focused on due process, that is, everybody has a right to marriage license, rather than equal protection, which says, well, if you have a marriage license, the right of gay couples has to be the same as the right of heterosexual couples. Now, that focus, I think, was a mistake. Uh, there's, there's no reason why government-conferred marriage licenses are a fundamental right. As a matter of fact, I don't think there's anything that requires government to be in the marriage business. So in that respect, I think Roberts, uh, his dissent was, was correct. The court should not have based its ruling on rights that it discovers in the Constitution. Uh, instead, the, the controlling pr- principle should have been this equal protection principle. You can't treat one group differently than you treat another group without a darn good reason. Yeah. So she's not, now, states were moving in the direction of recognizing gay marriage one by one, kind of a domino effect. Why do you think the Supreme Court felt it was necessary to step in? I guess they felt that constitutional rights, <clears throat> you know, are not protected by just waiting around for good things to happen. Uh, history gets changed when people make things uh, happen. And you may recall in 54, uh, when the court ruled in Brown versus uh, Board of Education, uh, desegregation in the schools. I mean, discrimination was common at the time. Uh, not just schools, but restaurants and work. And in 67, when the court struck down the ban on interracial marriage, uh, about three-fourths of Americans disapproved of inter- interracial marriage at that time. Uh, and, you know, if you go back as far as the 19... 19- 20s, there were 38 states that banned interracial marriage. Yeah. So by contrast, you have a, a poll now that shows about two-thirds support for same-sex marriage. Um, and among individuals that are younger, the 18 to 29 group, it's more than 80% support uh, interracial marriage. So th- there were a couple good reasons to proceed uh, back in 2015. It, it was inevitable that somebody was going to file suit, and the underlying facts might not have been as favorable as they were in the uh, Burgerfell case. And if uh, Burgerfell failed 
at the Supreme Court. The worst that would happen is that the status quo would be maintained. Yeah. And that would mean that some states would still be able to recognize a gay marriage and other states wouldn't. So there was not that much downside. I think that's why uh, the folks who wanted to advance this cause decided to move forward. So interesting. Bob, leave you again. Chairman of the Cato Institute, I refer you to the very robust website, Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here on the show, and I really appreciate your birthday wishes, as well as wishing you, Diane, and your family a very happy Thanksgiving. Thanks so much. And same to you, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, I'm going to visit with Andy Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Luke Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, not only building a beautiful performing arts center in downtown Naples, but also bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. And you get get tickets now by visiting gulfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Larry Bell. Right now we have with us Professor Andrew Joppa, uh, author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. I want and, to start and off. to you also, my friend. Oh, thank you, Andy. I really appreciate that. And uh, got a lot to be thankful for. 
Well, I, I do. I'll go through the obvious. I'm thankful, certainly, for my wife, my, my son, my grandchildren. Um, I'm happy for uh, my friends, such as, such as you. And perhaps, uh, incidentally, I'm very happy that I was given the grace by God to not be a progressive. I think that's an important <laughs> fact that I have to give right now. I don't know if that was God granted. I, quite frankly, I think that was a personal decision, and uh, I salute you for that. For all those that uh, have rejected the whole notion of uh, this progressive idea of, of giving away votes for for things, that's yeah, a, that that was somewhat facetious when I said. I that. know. I am still grateful, nevertheless. Bob. Yes. Okay. Uh, Understood, Andy. So, uh, you know, we've, uh, we're a little ways away from the Rittenhouse uh, decision. Thank God the decision, right decision was made. But I think his decision about Rittenhouse and, uh, you know, the right to self-protection uh, is pretty important. I wanted to get your thoughts. Well, there are a lot of vital issues coming out of the Rittenhouse case. Let me just start, uh, as I typically have been doing on your show, with the good news. Uh, the good news is the Arctic ice is growing, and right now it's on track to be the most in two decades. Uh, another nail in the coffin of the, the climate change hoax, as I see it. Uh, and again, we have more and more of these things, these uh, specific pieces of fact emerging. Uh, and I think the fact that the Arctic ice is growing is uh, not definable within the computer models used by the, uh, by the computer by the uh, um, climate change people. So I think that's very good news. Yeah, if, uh, I, might, if I might add, you know, this that's not new news. That's been going on for quite a while now. Of course, the information repressed by the mainstream media because it doesn't go along with the narrative of, uh, hey, we're heating up and things are going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah, it's very hard to know whether something I'm talking about is timely in this regard, as you're pointing out, because, as you say, the information is really suppressed for so long that it may not be current i think perhaps the fact that it's uh, on on track for the for the most in two decades that may be a new piece of information but i i really don't know but i think the information stands on its own and yep. uh, it does indicate that the the, the general premise of, uh, of climate change and global warming inherently being part of that uh, is something that is not being experienced certainly in the arctic at this point bob i absolutely uh, agree other noteworthy issues uh, as as we talk about some other issues before getting to rent house uh, once again, the FBI failures can be cited. Um, $130 million lawsuit coming out of the Parkland shootings, primarily because of the FBI's failure to uh, to identify the, um, the or not to identify, but to uh, stay monitoring the uh, identified potential assailant. Uh, we can also see another case that was current with Rittenhouse case, in, in which, again, the, the FBI was named, and that was the uh, Assis and Islam, the two uh, incarcerated uh, shooters, uh, theoretically the shooters of Malcolm X back in 1965. And once again, the FBI was identified as having a suppressed information that would have exonerated uh, both of these men for that crime. Now, uh, one of them is still alive, the other is passed. Uh, so uh, this has no tremendous impact on them in terms of their personal lives. But uh, I think we have to start noting the uh, indiscretions of the FBI. They seem to be uh, I know that Dana Loesch, you know, very strong spokesperson for the right, certainly, but nevertheless has called for something that I've suggested over many, uh, many years, perhaps, is the possible disbanding or at least the reorganization of the FBI, Bob. So yeah. uh, I think the FBI is, uh, is, is earning a bad reputation, um, and I don't think we can afford to have the FBI uh, functioning in this politicized role that it's, it's taken upon itself. 
perhaps not only at the top, but the more deeply down into the lower managerial levels of the FBI, Bob. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but mention, I mean, the, the attack going into Roger Stone's home and with, <laughs> to knock down the door and uh, uh, with uh, CNN there to, to report on what was going on. And I don't know if you heard about the, uh, the uh, raid on this home of this woman in Colorado where she was simply doing her job to make sure that the voter information was protected and uh, the FBI showed up at her door with uh, took all of her uh, electrical gadgets and so forth and uh, just wreaked havoc in her home. I mean, the, the FBI, the CIA, all these agencies have now have been so uh, legal, so uh, weaponized for political purposes. It's, it's know, really scary. Although the left would like to try to defend each of these circumstances uh, in isolation, if we look at the totality of this, I, uh, I don't think, and I, I'm pretty sure this is a valid statement, I don't think we can cite any circumstance where the FBI did anything comparable to anyone who would be described as being on the left politically. Right. Every one of these extreme actions by the FBI is directed exclusively at people that would be seen on the right side of the spectrum, Bob, which to me defines the nature of their politicization. Yeah, just take a look at the language that surrounds the, this guy that drove through this parade, the Christmas parade. It's just unbelievable how the narrative, the mainstream uh, media narrative, is is throwing a positive light even on this guy. I, I haven't heard the positive light. What? What is? I'm sorry. Oh, well, just, just, what is that positive? Just the fact that, well, covering up, for example, the fact that he has uh, broken bail in the past, that uh, he's got a, an extreme record. That it was the car that ran over the people, not the person. In other words, just the subtle <laughs> use of language of how they're, they're uh, uh, it's really distorting the whole picture about justice. Plus, the last offense for which he was bonded uh, for only $1,000 was where he ran over the wife of his <laughs> child. So we have a, a, a somewhat comparable event that had, had uh, caused him to be arrested and then put on bond for $1,000. The use of a uh, of a vehicle as a weapon, and, yeah. and then again, he uses it in in Waukesha. I think we can probably uh, attribute his actions, at least to a certain extent. And as this unfolds, maybe totally, uh, his actions may be motivated entirely by the extreme rhetoric that surrounded the Rittenhouse case uh, and the trial process as it unfolded. He shows a radicalized record, which includes the potential of. Of Islamic radicalism, certainly uh, black radicalism, no doubt about it. So uh, it's hard to believe that he was not, in fact, motivated to a large extent by the uh, by the, the rhetoric directed at Rittenhouse during his trial. Bob. Yeah, you know, the DA made the comment that they made a mistake by giving him low bail and allowing him out. He should, first of all, should have been offered bail in the first place because he jumped bail in the, in, in the past. Uh, so, but, but the point is that uh, they, you know, I think he should be charged. The DA. I'd like to see some sort of repercussions for these uh, Soros-backed DAs and what's happening in our country. I, he, he should be charged with a crime of accessory after the fact for what happened in that parade. Well, you know, for, in general, I think the, the accessory after the fact issue has to be made more front and center. If, for example, a police officer plants um, evidence to convict someone, uh, that person, that police officer, is guilty of a felony crime. Right. Now, I see no difference between that and a prosecutor, for example, as in the as in the Rittenhouse case, planting or withholding evidence to serve as a conviction basis uh, for, in this case, Rittenhouse. To me, those are both felony actions and should be treated as such, Bob.
No question about it. So uh, here we are. Uh, I don't know. Did you see the Tucker Carlson interview? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Of Rittenhouse. I thought it was absolutely good. And, and just absolutely convinced me that this is a fine young person, a fine young man, who simply was uh, defending himself, rightfully defending himself according to the law. He should have never been taken to trial in the first place. Every specific allegation against him was, was wrong and approvably wrong. Uh, as you indicate, Bob, his interview with Tucker Carlson, I think, showed Rittenhouse to be an exceptional young man. Uh, he's just barely 18. I think his articulation, his maturity was, was just outstanding. Uh, I think his actions in Kenosha were, uh, were, were, I've heard it referred to as immature. I saw nothing in what he did as being immature, requested to protect property, did that, was accosted by violent thugs, provably violent thugs, ran for his life, and only acted on, at, the, at the extreme moment where his life was in imminent danger. And everything else about <clears throat> crossing state lines and bringing his weapon into Kenosha, all of those things have been proven to be, to be false. Uh, and I think this is the type of young man that we should, should honor in this country, that we are producing uh, people of this quality uh, as, as a Rittenhouse. Yeah. Uh, in his interview and subsequent to that, he, he pointed out some of the issues that arose. Uh, first of all, imprisonment for uh, was 87 or 89 days in a cell with no water, no running water. Uh, he was kept there by the bad advice of his, uh, of his attorneys at that point, Lynn Wood and Pierce. Uh, they advised him to stay in, and he believes it was only to uh, use that as a focus point for raising money uh, for their purposes. They inappropriately advised him to interview with the Washington Post, uh, and so he, he uh, uh, rid himself of those two attorneys and, and brought in attorneys that actually uh, served the purpose of, of justice. Yeah. Uh, I think that what we saw in the Rittenhouse case was an amazing coming together uh, of a judge who knew his, his responsibility and a jury that accepted theirs. Those two combinations may not have been there. I think a different judge and certainly a different jury and, and Rittenhouse would not be a free man today, Bob. I agree with that. By the way, Lynn Wood, I, I, was, I was shocked and disappointed. I don't know if you recall, but he gave speeches before the election in Georgia for these uh, Senate races, and he encouraged uh, conservatives not to vote. I don't know if you recall that. Turns out this, yes, guy's, do, this guy is, was a lifelong liberal, I mean, I think he was a, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing. No, I, I, I tend to agree in looking at his actions. I think that's, that, that's, that's undeniable. So um, I think Rittenhouse, uh, the, the, I, I, I don't think Rittenhouse was not guilty. I think Rittenhouse was innocent. Right. And, and those are different words, of course. Uh, not guilty is a legal term. Uh, innocent is a, is, a, is a descriptive term of the absolute uh, innocence of the, of the person. So uh, Rittenhouse was uh, and is an innocent man. I hope his life uh, can go forward uh, unaffected. That's uh, probably not not going to be the case. If we look at the uh, the trials and tribulations of George Zimmerman after the uh, the Trayvon Martin situation and the, the rhetoric, the extreme rhetoric from the media that it was uh, continued after the the verdict was rendered in in that case, and also a very accurate rendering in, in that in that case. Uh, so I'm I'm optimistic I'm optimistic that there can be some semblance of of quality life for this young man, but uh, I I have to presume it's going to be affected by uh, by the left's pursuit that will go on for probably an indefinite period. Yeah, no, but if you can imagine if if he has the inclination and the motivation to become an attorney, 
I think he could become an absolutely uh, coveted defense attorney <laughs> in the justice system system going yeah, forward. Yeah, I, I think he's. Uh, I think he shifted. Uh, at last I heard, from wanting to be a nurse, yeah, uh, to wanting to be an attorney. And I think you're absolutely right. No one could bring to the court uh, a better understanding right. of the problems associated with the defense process than. Uh, then Ken Kyle Rittenhouse. Absolutely. So let me just, so let's change our focus a little bit to move, looking forward to 2024, 2022, 24, the presidential elections. Uh, what are your thoughts? Bob, can I just make a few other thoughts about the United States judicial system before we get there? Absolutely. Um, this is, in, this is independent of, of, of Kyle Rittenhouse and the uh, the statements made by so many conservative commentators that this is the best judicial system in the world and that has been uh, been seen in the Rittenhouse case. I have serious doubts whether it's the best uh, judicial system in the world. I, I really do, Bob. Uh, let me give you some uh, statistics. In the U.S. judicial system, the federal prosecutors have a 98% conviction rate. 95% never get to trial right. because of plea bargaining. I think we talked last week about uh, how plea bargaining can induce a totally innocent person uh, to uh, plead guilty to a lesser charge, and that's exactly that's exactly what the prosecutors do. So they get a 95% conviction rate, a uh, 95% never go to trial. Uh, if we look at comparable numbers at uh, other uh, other similar nations, uh, for example, uh, Canada's. Uh, prosecution succeeds only 61% of the time. Britain's prosecution succeeds only 50% of the time. We have 5% of the world's population and 25% of the incarcerated. I think it's, it's a result of a judicial system that is dedicated uh, to an adversarial role where conviction means more than the truth, and they induce this, this conviction to a large extent uh, with this horrible thing called plea bargaining, Bob. A great point. In fact, uh, Carrie Severino and Molly Hemingway wrote a book. Uh, it's entitled, it is entitled uh, Justice on Trial. I just encourage our listeners to read it, but it points out exactly what you're saying. I will add, though, however, the marijuana laws and uh, people being convicted for crimes that aren't harming others and aren't really a, an attack on other people's property. A lot of the folks that are in jail probably shouldn't be there because uh, their crimes for <laughs> having a a couple ounces of marijuana, whatever it might be, we got to take a look at those laws. Well, I, I mentioned to you, I think, that I had taught as one of my assignments at my, my university at Sing Sing for seven years. And uh, I knew a lot of these guys over an extended period of time, actually. They were in several of my classes. Uh, many of them were, 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 were decent fellows by every measurement I can apply. Yeah. But they were there for uh, mandatory sentencing in the New York drug law uh, considerations. Uh, most of them could not escape from that once they get out there. They were labeled as, as drug offenders, and that made uh, employment very difficult, if not impossible. Uh, and so these laws not only incarcerate 66% of the people incarcerated at that point in New York State were young. That means just over 18, but under 25. Young, first-time drug offenders, 66% of the population. So forget the enormous expense that we incur with that. But what we're breeding with that process is, in some cases, by the necessity of their lives, lifetime criminals, Bob. Yeah, and it's, uh, there's also these laws that uh, the three strikes and you're out, and I've forgotten the, the exact term that they use, but sometimes uh, when you take a look at the facts, people are in prison and they're having life sentences for such minor offenses, but it happens to be the third offense, so... 
uh, you know, it's, uh, well, we, you know, here in Florida, we've got more than 13,000 people serving life with parole, far more than any other state in the nation, almost a quarter of which uh, are the total nationwide population. 44% of the people serving in Florida were not convicted of a crime, according to analysis of state data. It's just unbelievable. Uh. Interesting data, Bob. Interesting. Let me cite a, uh, while we're here, let me cite a, a story specifically from Sing Sing. Uh, one of the uh, uh, inmates that had been in my classes, a fellow named Joe W., I won't give his last name, um, he was being released. He, uh, he'd been in the sentence twice for low-level drug offenses, and he, he said, uh, Professor Joppa, I do not want to get out. And I said, why is that, Joe? He says, because I'll get out, and I'll do my best to take care of my family. I'll, I'll try to go straight. I'll try to uh, work hard, but I know as a two-time drug offender, I'm eventually going to yield to the pressure to uh, to do something wrong, and, and I know that I'll get sent back. And as you cited, it would be three strikes and he's out. He would be in for life if he came back again, Bob. Yeah, yeah, it's sad provision. All, you know, of course, uh, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, and these lawmakers so pass these laws and get a lot of bravado and uh, uh, a claim for passing a law three strikes and you're out being tough on crime. Well, you take a look at the, the results of what happens. Uh, some very innocent people are serving life sentences for things that are just absurd. Well, and you know, again, I can cite the Assis, uh, Islam statement uh, or situation again back in '65. Uh, can you imagine if these uh, two uh, fellows had been executed? There's no, there's no reprieve on on falsification of evidence that causes the death of two innocent people. And that is exactly what might have happened. Uh, the death penalty was still actively on the books in New York in, in 65, although they hadn't had an execution since 63. It was still actively debated after the Malcolm X shooting. So yeah. you know, I think we have to examine this system and, and determine, you know, uh, I'm not saying it's totally bad, obviously, but I am saying that significant changes have to be made to avoid uh, punishment of the innocent or punishment of the uh, less significantly guilty. Sometimes the punishment is so extreme that it is totally beyond the scope of the crime. And by the way, I think both of us are making comments. There's also this movement like uh, Tlaib wants to let everybody out of jail. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about making having a fair and judicial system to take a look at the crimes that people are committing against uh, either other people's property or against uh, other people. Uh, but the whole notion of just letting people out of jail because, uh, you know, we shouldn't have people in jail, that's ridiculous and uh, a totally separate topic. Yeah, and again, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I've been a long advocate of if you do the uh, crime, you do the time. Darn right. So I'm, I'm not soft on criminality. I, obviously, you're not. Uh, but again, we're talking about the, the very quality of the judicial system and as an extension the quality of the culture and the entire society. When the society incarcer incarcerates six to 12 times more per capita than almost any other, comp not forget almost, than any other comparable nation on the planet, six to 12 times higher rates of incarceration per capita in America. Now, there's one of two things that have to be said about that. Either we are a, a, a population, or that, that level of incarceration is justified, 
or our judicial system is doing uh, some very bad things. Bob. Absolutely. Andrew Joppa, and we, we're not going to get to the election stuff, but uh, this has been such a fascinating conversation. And I hope you and your family have a wonderful Thanksgiving, and I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. You too, and I'll see you for breakfast next week. And look forward to it. Thank you, Andy. Always an interesting breakfast. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with uh, Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. You suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees. I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative, and I proudly serve on the board. I hope you'll check out thefga.org. We have with us Professor Larry Bell, endowed professor at the University of Houston in Space Architecture. He's the author of several books. His latest publication is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. And I'm looking forward to a new release. He's uh, published with Buzz Aldrin, Beyond Flagpoles and Footprints, Pioneering the Space Frontier. Professor Bell, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. And Bob, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor. Well, you know, we all have a lot to be thankful for. And also, <laughs> happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. Uh, but well, thanks. thanks for that. And I... 
think we all have a lot to be grateful for. We do indeed, uh, although uh, there's so much anger and discord in the country, and I just wanted to see if you had any thoughts uh, as we go into Thanksgiving about that. Yeah, I wrote an article uh, last week. It was titled, But for Love of Nation, We Are Lost. And it seems like, seems like we've been so depressed lately. You know, the, uh, we have uh, leadership of our country that doesn't seem to like it very much. We, you know, that's all the things with critical race theory and, you know, our evil history with slavery and, and uh, you know, this all, all of this uh, really toxic stuff that, that we're introducing to our children these days and, and so on. It seems like, you know, for a country that has so much to be grateful for mm-hmm. and so many people that have you know, it's really sacrificed their lives and, and, uh, you know, their families and their, their hopes, you know, to give us what we, what we want. They've, you know, they've, we have an amazing history and, uh, and, and to not appreciate that and to elect leaders that don't seem to appreciate that, you know, that, you know, that notion that we're systemically racist and so on. And, you know, the anger and the vitriol and, and families and friends being divided now over over these, these political uh, uh, issues, uh, it seems very really tragic. And, and, and I was, you know, again, reflecting this, this piece I wrote about uh, as recently as Ronald Reagan in the Chinese city on the, on the hill. And, but, America represents to so many of us, and uh, there's so much a part of our our fabric growing up mm-hmm. that somehow seems like even the notion of being patriotic today is somehow passe. It's not. You know, it's just, um, by being patriotic, we're not acknowledging our sins, and I don't know how we got so crosswise with. With, with reality and with with uh, understanding of of you know the great gift we have that mm. was bequeathed to us by so many you know that, that that suffered and dreamed and believed and did accomplish things that give us the lives we enjoy today. Yeah, that's great observation. You know, I I wonder though, and I I can I'll just premise this by saying I I see the world through rose-colored glasses often. At least I'm accused of that. But I just wonder if perhaps because of the mainstream media and the narrative that they support, and uh, again the progressive movement in the United States, I think most people agree with you. I think most people uh, really are proud of to be Americans. Most people are, and I'm talking about maybe the uh, build the. Uh, Make America Great Again, the, the Trump crowd, I'm not exactly sure what this population is, but I think a lot of people just don't agree with the narrative that's being pushed on the American people. Well, the people I, that I meet, and I think the people you meet, you know, are our neighbors and friends, you know, almost irrespective of their, of their politics, are really caring people. We see that. It's not unique to the United States. I've traveled a lot, and remember going to, the, you know, that's Soviet Union collapsed. That was one of the first Americans invited over there to be with our space officials and so on. But and I realized how, how dearly they love their families and their children. And 
And, uh, you know, the, we as humanity want things to be good. We, you know, we, it seems like often we create political systems that, that work against that. And, and, but, you know, humanity, we are, we are good people and we, we do care about one another. And, and I think those that, uh, are, and don't fit that are, are really the outliers, not, not, not those that really care and so on. And, and then you say, well, how did we ever get so, so messed up? And how did we ever get so angry? And, and what's this all about? And, and I believe it's, it's being engineered by people who are really trying to destroy the country. Mm-hmm. I really see it as when we look at the, you know, the, the, the vision of, kind of divide and control and conquer and so on is is really straight out of Karl Marx where you instead of looking at the country as a as a you know as a melt we used to call it a melting pot or but it's really a multicultural society mm-hmm. that we celebrate sorry about the dog. No worries. Yeah. Um, but but instead of really celebrating multiculturalism it's this notion that it's dividing them and, and creating these these cultural classes that uh, that are then can be set upon one another and, and so on. It's it doesn't happen accidentally. I believe that there's some very malevolent uh, people and interests that are causing this to be, and we can't let that happen. You know, pre- pre- I, I agree with that 100%. I will add, I just, you're reminding me of a conversation I had with Larry Reed, the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. He wrote a column about Booker T. Washington. And Booker T. Washington just warned that the American people back like in 1910 or some period early in our history, earlier in our history anyhow, that uh, beware of, he didn't call them this, but race baiters, because uh, he said there's money and power in it. Just avoid these people. I think that has a lot to do with what's going on right now. People can accumulate and garner power and money by virtue of being the Al Sharpton or the, <laughs> the other people that, and I know we're not talking about race here, but uh, we're talking about people that can promote all the things that we're talking about that are so harmful to our society because there's money and power in it. And that money and power seems to influence people in very high offices, I have to Day, really up to up to and including the White House. And yeah. When we have the you know President of the United States talking about how we're a systemically racist country and and we're seeing, you know just just in the last few last, you know, little while, the lawlessness, you know, where mm-hmm. where absolute uh mayhem and, and you know the and just evil lawlessness that's being that's being condoned, and uh, again, the, you know, I think there's a, I think there's a backlash to this now. I think mm-hmm. we're going to see it in the in the midterm elections, where and we saw what happened in Virginia, for example, and, and I think that that was an eye opener for a lot of people, and uh, also in New Jersey, and that people are beginning to respond and react, and but we, we you know, the you know, we're, and we're seeing what's being recovered now and, and understood regarding, you know, the uh, Russian collusion hoax and how the FBI and the and the uh, and the White House, you know, have been really uh, colluding with one another to to 
to rig uh, these false narratives and things, and we just terrible, terrible, terrible things that are happening that I think are are eating at the spirit of our country. And uh, I'm hoping desperately that you know that you know there will be a sea change that we will wake up to our you know to what we really uh, have inherited in this country and. And when we think of, you know, one hand, Reagan's, you know, shiny city in the sea, well, that's supposed to be trite and, you know, simplistic and so on, but I don't believe so. We see people trying to, you know, to, to cross our borders and, and and get some of our, you know, the, the things we've enjoyed, uh, you know, enjoy the lives that we've experienced at the same time that we denigrate and, and disrespect. Yeah, the same things that others clamor for, Professor. I just really appreciate your note of hope. Quite frankly, here, uh, looking forward that uh, we can get back on track. That's exactly what we require. Maybe uh, reversion to the mean means that we go back to uh, uh, understanding and respecting our past and uh, the opportunities we have in the United States. I just wish you and your family uh, a very happy Thanksgiving and generally appreciate your commentary, commentary here on the show. Professor, thank you so much for joining us. And Bobby, thank you so much. My pleasure indeed. Well, that's our up here in shape. By the way, the, the name of the book, uh, his latest, is What Makes Humans Truly Exceptional. I encourage you to get a copy. It's a great read, starting 13 billion years ago. That's a wrap on today's show. No show tomorrow. Happy Thanksgiving. I just wish you and your family have a great Thanksgiving and uh, really have a sense of appreciation for all the God-given things that we have here, our freedoms, and uh, working to protect them. Uh, happy Thanksgiving. I uh, uh, wish you and your family the very best here on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harton Show on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharton.com.